0: Turn with me in your Bibles then to Numbers and chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. This is, a, we'll read a few verses from here, from verse 4. This is about the bronze serpent. That's the snake that um, the Lord Jesus referred to in our readings. This is where our message will be from. Now, before we, um, before we read the verses that we'll look at, it's important that we have a little bit of context so that we can properly understand this. We're about to read the verses uh, here that talk about the people of God. This is um, a time when after the Exodus, they have just left Egypt and been freed from there by, uh, by God. And they've gone through the Red Sea together and they've wandered through the desert. They've come to the promised land that God has promised to give them. And he says, go in and take it. Take the promised land. It's all for you. It's all yours. I give it to you. And they say, no and they choose to wander in the desert instead because they would not take the land now the verses that we read here is of the next generation these people have been so well looked after by god they are now wandering in the desert and it's a time of particular discouragement it's not long ago that miriam died miriam was one of their leaders Aaron has just died as well. He was also one of their leaders. And now they are having to make a massive detour in their journey as well. So it's just one discouragement after the other. So let's read these verses from Numbers 21 and from verse 4 to 9. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people. And many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole." And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the serpent, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Before I was um, uh, the trainee pastor in this church, I was a pharmacist and I worked in the hospital. And uh, during a time there, uh, I had an opportunity to speak to somebody about the Lord Jesus, and so I did. And while I was speaking to them, I happened to use the phrase, I love God. At that point, somebody interrupted us. Another colleague of mine had overheard and was so offended that I had used this phrase, they said, you what? You love God. I don't love God. I can't. When I asked them why not, they answered, too much bad has happened in my life for me to love God. You see, for all of the blessings that this person had enjoyed in their life, they gave God no credit. But for all of the discouragements that had come their way, they knew who to blame for that. And that's the sort of place that we find our forefathers in the wilderness in Numbers 21, giving God all the credit for any discouragement. But for all of the blessings that they enjoyed, they didn't remember him. Now, when we read the New Testament, it tells us that these people, our forefathers in the wilderness, are our examples that we should learn from them, And so we're going to do that this morning, God willing, in three ways. First of all, we're going to learn how not to respond to discouragement in verses 4 to 5. And then we'll learn from them how not to respond to blessing in verse 5. And then finally, we'll look at God's repulsive remedy for judgment. First of all then, look at verses 4 to 5 for how not to respond to discouragement. I wonder if you noticed at the beginning in verse 4, they are discouraged. But by the end of verse 5, they're not discouraged anymore. They It's something else. What's happened? This is the first thing that they teach us. Do not let discouragement fester. Don't let it fester and rot and grow inside. You see, what happened was they allowed their discouragement to become doubt. And doubt, they allowed to become unbelief. If you see that in verse 4, it says they were discouraged about the way. But then, in verse 5, they begin to doubt God's promise and doubt his goodwill. He has promised to keep them safe. To feed them and water them and get them to the promised land. He promised. But they say, Why have you brought us here? They're doubting. But then it gets worse. Then they say at the end of verse 5, He's killing us, He's brought us here to die. They will not believe anymore. They will not believe the promise that God made to get them to the promised land. They allowed discouragement to become doubt, to become unbelief. I wonder, do you remember that this very thing happened to John the Baptist in the New Testament? John the Baptist, do you remember, he was in prison and he was discouraged about that. And he was also confused about the unusual ministry of the Lord Jesus. And that discouragement became doubt in his heart. And he wondered, is Jesus really the Christ? Does that ever happen to you? Does discouragement ever become doubt? We'll get to that, but let's learn the second lesson first. The second lesson is don't conclude that God is mean. Don't let discouragement fester and don't conclude that God is mean. Because there's an element of that in their complaint, isn't it? If we look at verse 5, it says, we will die here. God will not provide for our difficulty, for our needs. God is capricious. God is mean. They suggest that God is allowing them to starve, that the Lord will let them die of thirst in the wilderness. They're effectively saying, aren't they, it's only because the Lord is cruel that we are here. He's no gracious king. He's no good shepherd. He makes all of these promises about a promised land. Well, where is it? These two things discouragement, doubt, unbelief, and calling God mean, do you know what they do? They tempt God. They tempt him. We spoke about this a little bit in a Bible study not too long ago. I wonder if you can remember. We mentioned that 1 Corinthians 10, Psalm 78 And Psalm 106 say that in Numbers 21, that we're reading this morning, the people of God were tempting God. How is that? What does that even mean? Tempt God to what? Tempt him to judge them, perhaps, or tempt him to abandon them, perhaps? Well, the answer is this. They're tempting God to prove his promises. On their terms and in their time. What it is, is the people hearing the wonderful promises of God. I will love you. I will save you. I will protect you and feed you and rescue you. I will serve you. I will bring you to the promised land. And they reply, prove it. Your word alone isn't enough to secure my faith. I will believe it when I see it. To illustrate this, perhaps we could imagine a married couple, a happily married couple, for 30 years, we'll call them Tim and Jane. And uh, one day, the, the wife who has proved herself, proved her love to her husband, all these many years long, with everything that she says, and does she handles herself and she handles her husband and she handles the her children so well and she loves them with everything she says to them all that she does for them there's no doubt about it she loves them and one day jim says to tim or jane says to tim she says i love you the wife telling her husband i love you and he replies No, you don't. Prove it. I want to see proof. That's an insult, isn't it? That would hurt. Having proved one's love for the other, to the nth degree, to the ends of the earth, of everything that you've done and said for so many years, it's an insult and an offence that they should doubt it when you say it. That's what the people were doing in Numbers 21 doubting, unbelieving, tempting God, offending Him. I wonder, when the Son of God came to this earth, did He have to put up with all of this sort of stuff? Yes, of course He did. We know that when He came into the world, His people did not receive Him. When Jesus came, His people would not believe His words. They said, They tempted him with their unbelief, saying, What work will you do that we may believe in you? If you are the Son of God, throw yourself from the temple to prove it. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross that we may believe in you. That's exactly the same as what's happening here. But you see, for Jesus, we know that our Father's promises alone, on their own, were enough for him. He believed in his father's words. The words alone secured his faith. He would not test his father's words. He said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. His words are enough for me. I'm not going to test him. Tell him to prove it on my terms. All right, so that's what's going on. But how do we learn from that? If we're to do what the Bible says and learn from these people, how do we learn from them? Well, the Bible calls us to examine ourselves against their example. How do, we, how do we respond to discouragement in our lives? And you know as well as I do, there's a lot of discouragement going around at the moment. Calamity, sickness, unemployment, businesses going under, stresses on the marriage, unsaved children, unsaved spouses. Do we get discouraged? Of course we do. You'd be a very, very strange sort of human being if you didn't get discouraged by such discouraging things as those. But do we let it fester? Do we let it grow into doubt of God's promises? Do we doubt his love for us? Do we doubt his promise when he says that all things work together for the good of those who love God? Or rather, do we say with people like Job when he said, look, even if he kills me, still I will trust in him. What we say with Jesus, nevertheless, I will love you, no matter what happens. Or while our Saviour was being tortured, he said, my back is covered in cuts, but God is righteous. This morning is an opportunity to do what the Bible says. To take Numbers 21 and, as an example, examine ourselves how do I respond? How do we respond to the discouragement and difficulties that come our way? Do we doubt God's promises or do we claim them? Claim them and hold onto them tight. Yes, the church is closed and shut and I can't go there. But Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. My children are not saved. They will not believe in the Lord Jesus. But Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I will call them. They will hear. Nothing can stop him saving them. And there's so many promises like that that we need to claim, not doubt. All right, that's how not to respond to discouragement. Now, in verse 5, we also learn from them how not to respond to blessing. And this could be summed up in one word, forget. Forget. Have a look there at verse 5. What is it that the people forgot in verse 5? What did they Forget. They suddenly forgot the manna, the bread from heaven, that they ate that very morning. Or at least they considered it not worth remembering. They forgot the water that came from the rock. They forgot how God miraculously delivered these travelers from Egypt. They forgot how he parted the Red Sea for them and brought them through and saved them from all the armies of Egypt. And yet familiarity with all of these blessings bred contempt of what God gave them. They didn't guard their gratitude for it. Now I wonder if you can finish this little rhyme for me. Remember, remember the 5th of November. We come up with all sorts of nifty little ways to help us remember important things, important events, important days. And for the rest of the history of the people of Israel, they wrote songs and books and poems and their prophets would preach and exhort the people constantly to remember, remember the blessings of God, praise God, thank God for his mercies and his blessings. And so we can learn from them that we must guard our gratitude for the blessings that God has given us. Perhaps the Christian equivalent to Remember, Remember the 5th of November is that wonderful song we used to sing, Count Your Blessings, Name Them One by One. Do you know that song? Remember all of his blessings. Perhaps then we wouldn't get so discouraged so quickly. And I hope you don't mind me saying that there are so many brothers and sisters in our church who, by their example of how they treasure and respond to the blessings of God, really show me how much I've taken for granted. How to respond to blessing. Remember, don't forget them. Now, as we turn to verses 6 to 9, we can look now at God's shocking response, his repulsive remedy, for the judgment that he brought upon them because you see that in response to their insulting unbelief and their thanklessness to the lord he judges them with snakes in verses 6 and 7 we see there he sends snakes into their camp now the topic of judgment is it's a hard one isn't it and it really it can run a rub against the grain sometimes so Do talk about that. If you're in a home with a few believers there, you can talk about it and thrash that out. Or you can get in touch with us, people in the church, and we can talk about these things because they're important. But for now, suffice it to say that the judgment here Numbers 21, although it is hard, it is gracious, it is wise. Because without this judgment, our fathers would not have been driven to seek forgiveness. They would not have repented. You can see that progression there. If you see in verse 6, it says, So, in response to the sin of the people, God sends snakes. And then verse 7, Therefore, in response to the judgment, the people seek forgiveness. And then in verse 8, in response to their repentance, the Lord God provides this repulsive remedy. That's the progression that runs through these few verses. But here's my question for you. It's a really important one. Why this remedy? Why a snake on a pole? Could have been anything. Why not a lovely lamb? Why not a dove? Why not something that reminds us of forgiveness? Why not something that speaks about love and mercy and compassion? Why not something that looks like it's healing? Why a snake? It's quite difficult to describe how scandalous this was. Because to us, snakes might be scary, but to these people it was just so much worse. Snakes were an offensive reminder of the curse of God. It was a disgusting reminder of that curse which afflicted them and the whole world. It was because of a snake that they were in the mess that they were in. Because of snakes there was such a thing as sin and death and God's judgment and deserts and thirst and hunger. Even while the people were in Egypt, they knew a snake god there. A snake god of chaos and darkness. Their whole lives, and especially in the desert, they run from snakes. They fear snakes. They hide from them. They hate them and loathe them, find ways to kill them. If they came across a snake in the desert, it would mean running. It would mean fear. It would mean fight. It would mean flight. It would mean pain. It could mean death. And even in here, even in Numbers 21, what do snakes mean? But the judgment of God, a symbol of his anger and his wrath. It gets more scandalous, you know, because who did the Lord instruct to make this? It was Moses, isn't it? Moses, of all people, was told by the Lord to make a graven image. A graven image of a snake for the people to look to. I wonder whether he thought he'd misheard the Lord. You want me to make what? A graven image of a snake of all things, a snake like that which embodied all evil in the Garden of Eden, a a graven image of the most cursed of all creatures, an image of the enemy lifted up as the remedy, a picture of something so ugly and wicked and just a curse lifted up for everyone to look at A remedy for sin and death and judgment in that? A graven image of a snake. We might imagine an Israelite in these days had been bitten by a snake and he knows now that he's going to die. And then he hears that the Lord has given Moses a remedy, yet another miracle to save his people. And then he hears But Moses has made a bronze serpent and lifted it up for everyone to look at that they may be saved. What was it that the people looked at in that serpent? What was that serpent telling them? What did did they see in it? What did it mean to them? They had to look at an ugly reminder of their own sin, a reminder of their own guilt. A reminder of their own curse, the judgment of God, sin and guilt upon them. They had to look at a picture of that if they were to be saved. What illustration could possibly suffice for how shocking this was? Why? Why a snake? This is where our reading really sheds light. The Lord Jesus said about this particular thing in John 3, in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, that's Jesus, be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, in Jesus' day, What were the people looking for? They were looking for their Christ, a remedy for sin. They were looking for God's chosen one. They were looking for somebody to come to cure the venom of sin which had fatally infected them. They were looking for the Prince of Peace. The the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. They were looking for God's king of heaven. They were looking for a perfect man who was exactly right, perfect for the task, fit for the job to cure sin. They were looking for a saviour. They were looking for a king, a real man. But what did they get? They're looking for a remedy of sin in the Christ. But what they get was Jesus. A man that they know is a local carpenter. A friend of sinners. A pub goer. A man who is a heretic, a criminal. Crucified, nailed, naked, weak. A pathetic mass of flesh pinned to a Roman crossbeam. And then... He, the Lord Jesus, and his apostles said that everyone has to look at him if they're to be saved. If they're to have a remedy from sin, they have to look at him. What do you think the people thought of that? No wonder the cross, as we told the children earlier, is a foolish message. It is an offence to all those who will look for God. Are you looking for God? Is that why you're here? Are you looking for Jesus? Are you looking for a remedy for sin? Are you looking for something to take the guilt away? Something to make me right with God? Something to give me hope for eternal life? Hope for death? The cross is an offense to all who look for God because they find Him hanging on a cross. We have to look to Him. We have to look at a first century Jewish carpenter to be saved and receive from God the gift of eternal life. Our consciences and our Bibles tell us that we need God to save us. We need Him to save us. If we are to have any hope of being saved, it's only in God. We need Him. And when we go looking for him, we find him. And we find him saving, but not from a throne. We find him saving from a cross, a symbol of execution, a symbol of death, a reminder of sin and guilt. We find Jesus dispensing life from death. Yes, you can be assured, we find what we're looking for. It's just not what we expect or what we want. I'm reminded again of the verse that we gave to the children, 1 Corinthians 1, says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That is why a snake. Because when looking for mercy, these people in Numbers 21 had to look at the most cursed of all creatures, And we too, we too, looking for mercy from God, wanting to be saved and washed from our sin, we must look to the one who was most cursed for us. Are you looking for righteousness? Are you looking to be saved? Are you looking to be made right with God? You know, if you're looking for righteousness, you go to Christ and you find sin, since he was made sin for us. We look for blessing from God and we find a curse, since on the cross he was made a curse for us. We go looking to be right with God and we find a sinner, since he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. We go looking for life and we find death, since Jesus came for the suffering and pain of death. We go looking for forgiveness, but we find judgment, since he was judged in our place. This is the shocking, radical activity of our God. He had Moses make a graven image of a snake so that stiff-necked sinners could look at it and see in it their poverty, their need, their destitution of anything good. They could look at it and see their sin, their wrong, their evil, and yet live. That's why a snake. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so that all could look at it and live, so God, our Father in heaven, makes a shameless spectacle of his Son so that sinners like us can look at him and live. I can't put it better than one commentator. He said, Faith in Jesus is faith in one who, in the form of one condemned, transforms curse into deliverance. Isn't that wonderful? Now, to close, I want to ask you a question. Did you notice a very stark change in verse 9? In verse 9, the pronouns change. What we had read was we, they, us. It becomes one. It becomes he. We had read the people, but now we read one. It gets personal. What do you think of the cross? Is it an offence? Is it repulsive? Does the notion that it would require the death of the Son of God to fix you because you are that broken, does that scandalise you? Or is the cross to you the power of God? Is it everything? Is it your only hope? You know, on this day uh, in Numbers 21, many died because they would not look. They would not believe. No, I won't. I won't look. I won't believe. I'll wait for the doctor. Moses wouldn't do something so awful as that. He wouldn't do it. That's just too good to be true. And on this day, many lived because they believed. They looked and they lived. At this very instant, many, many people are populating hell because they would not look. They would not believe in the Lord Jesus. No, I won't look. I won't believe. God would not do that for me. It is too good to be true. I'm too broken. I don't deserve that. I'm good enough, perhaps. They would not believe. They would not look. They would not live. But you know, wonderfully, by the mercy and by the sheer grace of our God, countless millions populate glory, even in this instance. People that, as a church, we have buried in the last few months. They are in glory now because on earth they did look and they did live. And now they look and they live in Christ forever. We're not going to sing it at the end because it's a bit hard to sing on your own. But these are wonderful words from um, number 487 in our hymn book. There is life for a look. At the crucified one, there is life at this moment for thee, for you. Then look, sinner, look unto him, unto Jesus, and be saved, unto him who was nailed on the tree. It is not your tears of repentance or prayers, but the blood that atones for the soul. On him then who shed it, you may at once your weight of iniquities roll. Look. Look, look and live. There is life for a look at the crucified one. There is life at this moment for you. You know, many of you will know the name Charles Spurgeon. He was a famous preacher in this country many years ago. And when he was converted, listening to, um, listening to a message that says, Look to Jesus. And uh, he was converted and he wrote about his experience of becoming a Christian. You know, he had gone to church before. He He would call himself a Christian before, but he was never saved because he never looked and he never lived in Jesus. And that day he did. He looked and he lived in Jesus. And he said, oh, I looked and I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and in that moment I saw the sun. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. I do from my soul confess that I was never satisfied until I came to Christ. That is the wonderful message of Numbers 21 that God would do something so scandalous and so offensive as to make a shameless spectacle of his perfect and only son, the Lord Jesus, and lift him high for everyone to see in him sin, death, judgment, wrath, condemnation, all of my guilt on him. And when I look at him in faith... When I believe in him, when all of my iniquity, when all of my sin and guilt and all of this filth in me is put on him, I can live. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. I'm going to read a few words from Isaiah 45 and then I'll pray to close before we sing our last hymn together. These words come from Isaiah 45. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come and shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we bless you for this gospel, that though it is death to the whole world, Lord, it is life to us who are being saved. Oh Lord, give us eyes to see the light of Jesus Christ in the darkness of calvary open our eyes that we may look at him and look and look until we could look our eyes away in him lord is the desire of nations he is most precious in our sight he is the fairest of ten thousand Oh, give us eyes to see that in this one who was in the form of one condemned. Help us to see he transforms curse into deliverance. Help us to see in this root out of dry ground, in this one who is not a man but a worm. Help us to see in him God himself, the son of God, the saviour of sinners. Oh Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would enlighten our eyes, shine a light on our hearts, that we may see him, look and live and believe in the only begotten son of God, Jesus Christ himself, in whose name we pray. Amen.